The following podcast contains audio extracted from videos on the Mythology Explained YouTube channel. Please note that there are two narrators for this podcast, myself, Silas, and Zach. Please enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to Mythology Explained. In today's video, we are going to discuss one of the most intriguing events from the life of Jesus Christ, his temptation in the desert. We'll begin by unpacking the gospel accounts illuminating the dramatic encounter between Jesus and Satan in the wilderness. From there, we'll venture into more contentious territory beyond the cartography of consensus and the compass of convention, intrepidly sailing with no regard for our own survival into the treacherous waters of conjecture. They're delving into questions like, what motivated Satan to tempt Jesus, and did he truly believe he could sway the Son of God to sin? Was Jesus, given his divine nature, even susceptible to sin, or was he intrinsically impervious to the wicked wiles of evil? More so making the temptation akin to enacting a play rather than an engagement with peril. And had Satan succeeded, what could that have meant for the course of human history and salvation? Would it have precipitated a catastrophic shift in the cosmic balance, turning Jesus to the side of evil? If yes, what would this have meant for humanity and the universe at large? All right, let's get into it. The four Gospels are the first four books of the New Testament in the Christian Bible. They are named after their traditional authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These books are unique in their focus on the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, together considered the primary source of information about the life and teachings of the Son of God. While all four Gospels share this common focus, they each present a distinct perspective. The Gospel of Matthew, for example, emphasizes Jesus as the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies, presenting him as the long-awaited Messiah. Mark's Gospel, thought to be the first written of the four, portrays Jesus as a powerful yet suffering servant. Luke, the only Gospel written by a Gentile, meaning non-Jewish person, emphasizes Jesus' compassion for the poor and marginalized. John's Gospel, the most theological of the four, highlights Jesus' divine identity, presenting him as the incarnation of the Word, or Logos, of God. The four Gospels coalesce, conglomerating the individuality of each to paint a comprehensive portrait of the life and teachings of Jesus. The temptation of Jesus Christ is a significant event recounted in the New Testament Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, conspicuously absent from the Gospel of John. This event takes place after Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist and before the start of his public ministry. It is a critical moment when Jesus confronts and resists the temptations offered by Satan, affirming his divine mission and his obedience to God's will. According to the Gospels, after his baptism, Jesus goes into the Judean desert to fast and pray for 40 days and nights. During this period of spiritual preparation, he is visited by Satan, who tries to tempt him away from the purity of his preordained path. This encounter in the desert is significant as it highlights Jesus' humanity and instructs how the myriad temptations treacherously teeming in the world can be overcome. The first temptation involves turning stones into bread to satisfy his hunger. Satan challenges Jesus to prove his divine sonship by creating bread from stones, but Jesus refuses, quoting scripture. 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This response signifies that spiritual nourishment and obedience to God's will are more important than satisfying physical hunger. In the second temptation, Satan takes Jesus to the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem and dares him to throw himself down, promising that angels would save him. Again, Jesus resists, responding with scripture. Again, it is written, you shall not test the Lord your God. This encounter underscores the importance of trusting in God and refusing to test or question his providence in inappropriate ways. Finally, in the third temptation, Satan offers Jesus all the kingdoms of the world if he would worship him. Once again, Jesus refuses, declaring, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. This refusal emphasizes Jesus' commitment to serve God alone. Satan leaves after being rebuked a third time by the Son of God, righteous and resolute, and then angels come to minister to Jesus. The temptation of Christ is an event of deep theological significance that has spurred much scholarly debate. The most fundamental concept seems to be the doctrine of the hypostatic union, which holds that Jesus is the coincidence of complete divinity and complete mortality. In other words, simultaneously perfectly God and perfectly human. In Jesus' case, it isn't two halves making a whole, but a matter of one plus one equaling one. This then feeds into the idea of the Holy Trinity, comprising God the Father, Jesus, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each of these perfectly and completely God by themselves, while also, at the same time, being perfectly and completely individual. Here is a passage from Christian theology written by Millard J. Erickson to explain further about Jesus' dual nature. The hypostatic union is the term used to designate the fact that in Christ one person subsists in two natures, the divine and the human. It has been recognized that one must not think of three persons of the Trinity as substances. That would be modelism, but as subsisting in substance. So in the case of Christ, we are not dealing with a divine substance and a human substance, but with a single subsistence, a single person. That one person is the Word or Logos, the second person of the Trinity. As such, he possesses all the attributes of divinity. He is omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. As a result, some of the divine attributes are in a sense self-limiting. The second person, Jesus the man, does not know all things, but only what the Father has chosen to reveal to him. He cannot exercise his omnipotence to perform deeds contrary to the will of the Father, and he is not present everywhere. On the other hand, he has all the human limitations. Thus he has a physical location in space and is unable to be present at more than one place at a time. But these limitations are compatible with the limitations of human nature. Because of Jesus' dual nature, interpretations of his temptation are predicated on whether Jesus' divinity or mortality is given precedent. The idea here is that God, which Jesus perfectly is as God the Son, is beyond temptation, God and sin being mutually exclusive. God, by definition, can't be sinful. One of the core continuums that underpins Christianity exists between the polarity of good and evil, with God, the epitome and absolute source of goodness on one end, and sin and evil on the other. 
The utter impossibility of God and evil, even the most minute modicum of evil, coexisting in the same being, is said succinctly in 1 John. God is light, in him there is no darkness at all, and is discussed in systematic theology written by Wayne Grudem, as can be seen here. God's holiness means that he is separated from sin and devoted to seeking his own glory. This definition contains both a relational quality, separation from, and a moral quality. The separation is from sin or evil, and the devotion is to the good of God's own honor or glory. Tying this into Satan's temptation of Jesus, it is difficult to definitively answer, especially given the absence of scriptural delineation, questions like, what were Satan's motives? Could Satan have succeeded? And what would have happened had Satan succeeded? Jesus is perfectly God and so, in this respect, is beyond sin. But Jesus is also perfectly human, putting a concurrent chink in his proverbial armor, as all of humanity is susceptible to the seduction of sin. Despite the dearth of information pertaining to these questions in the Bible, they have been expounded on by prominent theologians in extra-biblical works. St. Thomas Aquinas, in his theological work Summa Theologica, provides a nuanced perspective on the question of Christ's ability to be tempted. Aquinas, like other theologians, grapples with the mystery of the Incarnation, that is, Christ being fully God and fully man at the same time. In Part 3, Question 41, Aquinas analyzes the temptation of Christ in great detail. He begins by asserting that Christ allowed himself to be tempted as a human to provide an example for us. Christ's temptation shows us how to resist when we are faced with temptations in our own lives. In the third article of the same question, Aquinas deals with the question of whether Christ could have actually sinned when tempted. He argues that sin occurs when the human will, faced with a choice between good and evil, chooses evil. However, for Christ, this was impossible because his human will was perfectly united to his divine will. Since God is perfectly good and incapable of sinning, so was Christ as a human. Aquinas writes, Christ as a man could be tempted. As God, he could not be tempted. For temptation is from a certain lack or weakness, which could not be in Christ, since he was God. Here, Aquinas is emphasizing that Christ's divine nature made him incapable of succumbing to sin. Temptation arises from some form of lack or weakness, a vulnerability that can be exploited. Since God is perfect and lacks nothing, he is not subject to such weaknesses. As such, Jesus as a man could be tempted, but Jesus as God could never succumb to temptation, precluded by divinity. In paragraph 470 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it states, Everything that Christ is and does in this nature derives from one of the Trinity. The Son of God, therefore, communicates to his humanity his own personal mode of existence in the Trinity. In his soul as in his body, Christ thus expresses humanly the divine ways of the Trinity. This means that Christ's actions, thoughts, and will are aligned with God's own divine essence, which is fundamentally good and sinless. Aquinas, again, in his Summa Theologica, asserts that while Christ had the capability of feeling and experiencing human passions and emotions, he did not have the defects associated with these, such as sin. He says, 
Christ assumed these defects in our nature, and by his passion he delivered us from them, not that he might take them upon himself, but that he might cleanse us. So, according to these interpretations, Jesus was without sin not because he chose not to sin when he could have, but because his divine nature made it logically impossible for him to sin. His human nature could experience temptation, as it did in the desert, but his divine nature was incapable of sin. It's also important to remember that these theological questions are inextricably intertwined with the mystery of the Incarnation and the hypostatic union, concepts that are ultimately beyond complete human understanding. We can meditate on them, but that meditation is marginal, the roughest and most rudimentary pencil sketch compared to the finished work. We are now going to wrap the video up by surveying some speculation about what could have happened if Satan was successful in his endeavor to tempt Jesus. The idea of Satan successfully tempting Jesus is largely hypothetical, given that the New Testament's accounts stress Jesus' resistance to temptation. However, such speculation can provide interesting insights into the nature of Jesus' mission and the theological implications of his obedience to God's will. 1. The Undermining of Jesus' Mission If Jesus had given into Satan's temptations, it would have fundamentally undermined his mission. His mission, as described in the New Testament, was to obey God's will perfectly and to sacrifice himself for the salvation of humanity. If he had succumbed to Satan's temptations, he would have strayed from his mission and so jeopardized the salvation of humanity. Scholar N.T. Wright, in his book, Jesus and the Victory of God, writes, The testing of Jesus has to do with his vocation to enact the return of Yahweh to Zion, and thus the end of Israel's long desolation, in and through his own suffering. 2. Compromising the Nature of God's Kingdom Jesus' acceptance of Satan's temptations would have signified a misrepresentation of the nature of God's kingdom. Instead of a spiritual kingdom brought about through self-sacrifice and servitude, it would have become a kingdom of worldly power and glory, which was not the intent of Jesus' ministry. As scholar Dale Allison comments in Constructing Jesus, Memory, Imagination, and History, if Jesus had succumbed, he would have chosen the path of glory, not the path of suffering. 3. Jeopardizing the Salvation of Humanity Christian soteriology, the branch of Christian theology that deals with salvation, hinges on the belief that Jesus' perfect obedience and subsequent sacrifice provided a means of salvation for humanity. If Jesus had sinned, he would not have been a perfect sacrificial offering, and the means of salvation would have been compromised. As outlined in the Atonement, the Origins of the Doctrine in the New Testament, by Martin Hengel and Anna Maria Schwemmer, Jesus' sinlessness is fundamental to the Christian understanding of the Atonement. Had he sinned, he could not have been the Savior of humanity. And that's it for this video. If you enjoy the content, please like and subscribe. Thanks for watching.